0: Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Australia is looking at another weekend of protests around the country with um, interesting identities, typically identified with the conservative or far-right ideology, uh, looking at uh, the so-called freedoms and whatever have you. Now, over the past few years, what we have seen is an increase in the proactivity of certain kinds of actors, people on the extreme right, people who believe in all sorts of weird things. They may not be right-wing, but they certainly believe in strange stuff. And they cause a lot of concern and heartache for their families as well as for others out there in the community. The author of a new book called Q1 On and On joins me to talk about some of this, the the harm that's done by extremists to themselves, to their families, to their communities, and possibly even how people should deal with that. I'm joined by Van Badham, who's written the book and it's come out on the uh, part of the Hardy Grant imprint. Van, thank you for joining me.
1: Oh my God, thank you for having me, Tom.
0: Uh, and uh, it's okay. I don't usually respond to God, but that's all right. But the, um, it, before we dive into the the book itself, which is a substantial volume, and it's um, it's a conversational, comprehensive look at the area, there are those people who hear this who, who have, aren't familiar with your body of work uh, to date. Uh, what would your career look like if you put it on a uh, post-it note?
1: Well, I usually just describe myself as a writer and activist. Uh, I came out of the student movement and was very heavily involved in student politics, and it sort of set me up with a framework for understanding the Venn overlap of street activism and electoral politics. I come from a trade union family. I, you know, worked for unions as I was going through university, and I have maintained very serious allegiance with the movement, as one does. And I, as a writer, I'm primarily known as a playwright, but eight years ago I was recruited by The Guardian to become a columnist and set off on a very interesting media journey. But I write fiction and non-fiction, I churn out the occasional poem, and uh, have done a bit of work in TV. So I, I believe the flattering term for what I do is a portfolio career, uh, whereas uh, the less flattering term is hack. So you can... You can choose either extreme is fine.
0: The interesting thing about the book, and right up front, you talk about the seed that led you to, uh, that led to this thing to germinate. Uh, it started with a Guardian column. What was significant about that column?
1: So I had noticed this sort of I mean I have been uh, aware of QAnon for quite some time I get a lot of heat on the internet because I'm a feminist with a media column so one attracts all kinds of interesting admirers and because of issues around my safety I always make a point when I get attacked online of screen capping and saving and making a note of who's attacked me and trying to assess their sort of threat level. And a couple of years ago, I started looking at the timelines of various people who were attacking me with very weird commentary and noticed this very heavily apocalyptic language and this reference to Q and prophecies of Q and became aware that there was this sort of movement that I hadn't encountered before that turned out to be a very new movement. Of believers in this QAnon conspiracy theory and somehow I had ended up on their radar. As time went on and I saw more of this stuff especially during the pandemic and by this stage American journalism had sort of caught up with what was going on, some really excellent uh, commentary appeared. I had quite a, a sound knowledge of what this movement was and what it represented and a pretty good idea of who was stoking it and manipulating it and I was starting during the pandemic last year in 2020 particularly was getting a lot of inquiries from the community that's based around my public Facebook page and my Twitter account and people who were getting in contact with me as someone who lives on the internet and talks about this stuff about how they'd had relatives or friends or other loved ones who they saw going down this particular rabbit hole into QAnon belief and wanting to know what to do about it so I pitched a column to the Guardian about looking at uh, some of the advice that had been given about getting people out of QAnon and what you could do and wrote uh, a column for The Guardian saying, you know, this is these are some strategies you could try if somebody you know is going down the rabbit hole. And it went burko, like it went absolutely gangbusters and was quite the viral sensation for The Guardian. And on the basis of that column, two really interesting things happened. One, I was contacted by an old friend who's up in Queensland, who told me about an experience that they'd had where they got shunned from the yoga community for standing up against this sort of QAnon conspiracy theory and had been really quite, you know, upset and distressed by this experience of being purged from their yoga friendship group for refusing to go along with this sort of conspiratorial thinking, which I just found really fascinating. And then the publishers, Hardy Grant, contacted me and said, look, we've seen your column everywhere. Would you be interested in doing a whole book about this? And I said yes, because I knew that I had friends who'd had these stories and I'd had so many social media contacts who'd talked to me about it. And then, of course, I put a couple of inquiries out on Facebook and Twitter saying, have you had experiences with the QAnon cult? And I got literally hundreds of replies within hours and people telling me the most extraordinary encounters they'd had with the staff. And that sort of formed the bedrock of the book. But the interesting thing that happened was I originally thought that I would be writing a book about the believers and the, the people who were sort of wreaking this havoc on fam- their families and, and their friendship circles. But when I went undercover into QAnon, so I created a bunch of internet personas and and posed as a a belief adherent and infiltrated various groups and got to know these people. What became really apparent to me was that they were the least interesting thing about the story, that a lot of the QAnon people were were kind of predictable and their their demographics were um, extraordinarily similar, I think is a polite way of of describing it, what I became really interested in was the broader geopolitical context of the conspiracy cults and various links between the conspiracy community and an organised activist uh, far right. And that's really what the book became about.
0: One of the interesting things that I've done over the past year is talk to people who have been involved in extremist movements. Um, particularly far-right, uh, when I've interviewed the former National Socialist Movement leader, Jeff Scoop, on several occasions uh, in, from the US. And what, what's interesting is the level of contriteness and contrition uh, these people feel when they move away from the movement, when they realise how much of an impact that's had on other people's lives. Not only their families, but also the their, the previous targets of their invective and their propaganda. What did you find in dealing with people who were who had gotten close? Did you close to this or, or enmeshed in that that uh, cult like environment? Well, the book
1: chronicles a lot of uh, the adventures of people who've been on almost you know perpetual apology tours. Uh, since they left the sort of QAnon cult, um, there are a couple of people who, um, and I'm thinking particularly of Melissa Rain Lively, who very infamously smashed up a mask stand in an, an American Target, uh, screaming, you know, at this mask stand a few uh, months ago, and who sort of was in this horrible sort of paranoid fugue state for about two months, and then came out of it and has since been giving interviews to Heretz and various other publications about her experiences of going what on earth happened to me and there were various other people whose stories that I collated for the book who spoke about being on the other side who described it as just like like being in a in a tunnel of terror and not feeling that they could get out of it and that you know they were overwhelmed psychologically by the kind of information they were getting and also very susceptible to propaganda And these are, I mean, they're sort of inspiring stories in the way that, you know, these are ordinary people who have had an extraordinary experience, are prepared to talk about it. And that should give hope to people who are struggling with relatives who are or loved ones who who are down the rabbit hole, who are enmeshed in this stuff now. But at the same time, it's genuinely terrifying to think of otherwise, you know, reasonable people who, because they're in a period of vulnerability and distress, become extremely successful, susceptible to the radical propaganda on offer. And I've got to say, my experience of going undercover and some of the channels that I joined, there are, there is just, you just cannot imagine the propaganda onslaught and how overwhelming mm-hmm. it is, how rapid it is, and how quickly the conspiracy conspiracy narratives take hold. And if you are paying attention to it, if you are taking it seriously, I mean, I always had the distance of going, I'm doing this for research. This is not something I have sought out because I want to believe it. It, The state that it would encourage you into is genuinely terrifying. Like if you have made the decision to believe these conspiracy myths and you are on a Telegram channel or in a Facebook group that is willing to to Mm -hmm. feed that choice, you are in a very dangerous and vulnerable place.
0: There's uh, a role in social media that's worthwhile just expanding on here, isn't there? Because with social media, people can get a narrow casted feed. They can just consume one. They can just receive one source of information or one view of the world all the time without referring to. Anything else whatsoever in that it would appear to be rather harmful.
1: Oh, it's terrifying. So some of my internet personas that I've used to do this work, I have these dedicated Facebook feeds set up around those personas and you know, this collection of friends I've never actually met in real life who you know talk to me about their lives and their stories. And it, it is it is amazing the parallel reality that you can enter with access to social media so one of my so one of my facebook personas you would have no idea if you just sat on that as your news source all day which people do listening to 4000 people who are my you know maxed out friendship group for that particular account talking about you know the news and sharing what they consider to be the news from unreliable bad faith and inaccurate and lying propaganda sources The the vision you get of the world is completely distorted. And you look at someone like Daniel Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, who this week, it's emerged, has been the subject of, you know, attempts on his life, not just the rhetoric of violence around him, but people buying guns and and encouraging others to turn up to protest with guns. There were reports of somebody arrested for bomb-making you can understand that people in those communities who are fed a constant stream of lies that are backed in by other people and internet conversations and this sort of overwhelming social discourse would if they were just consuming that as their news source, would develop this completely inaccurate idea of how Victoria is being governed, what Andrews has done, how the legislative process works, what the health restrictions are. A lot of the people who are campaigning against the pandemic laws have not studied those laws. They've taken interpretations that have been offered to them on the internet and Mm -hmm. believe them in the context of the most extraordinary untrue conspiracy thinking about Andrews and the government in Victoria. And it's really terrifying the kind of... If you were making moral decisions within a reality that looked like that, they would be extreme ones because of the kind of apocalyptic language and the relentless encouragement towards really quite extremist positions.
0: I think it's probably useful for the listeners to to also know that... um... Not only does this apply to QAnon, but it also applies to uh, you know, kind of anti-government militias that that you see in the US, the the three percenters and the the Oath Keepers and, and um, yeah other well, other similar groups. They all feed off um, similar conspiracy theories about the government. Uh, acting in a suspicious manner and against the interest of the populace.
1: Oh, look, absolutely. And there's huge Venn overlap. Like, the people who are consuming QAnon content are also consuming Oath Keepers' content, and they're also consuming Three Percenters' content. They're also watching Fox News and Newsmax and the One American News Network and listening to people like Dan Bongino and, at various times, Joe Rogan, and, and they're... People have described QAnon as like an omni conspiracy theory. Like it will suck up any kind of conspiracy theories that perpetuate on the right and and make them part of this sort of overriding mythos. You know that this evil cabal are operating under the street, seizing children, and they have all these nefarious plans. And they probably fake the moon landing. And they're probably in league with the lizard people. And they're probably like, oh, you know, it's probably another word for the Illuminati. Like depending on what flavour of conspiracy you want. It's like QAnon is like the Baskin-Robbins of conspiracy theories. It's got more flavours than anybody else and you can find what you're looking for within its sort of world view. But that that Venn overlap is, is really genuinely terrifying because, of course, the real danger with QAnon is that if you can convince someone through that combination of their own willingness and relentless propaganda to believe the kind of easily disproven fact-free nonsense nonsense that that particular conspiracy theory is based on, you can convince them to do anything. You can convince them to join a militia. You can convince them to threaten to kill Daniel Andrews. You can convince them to march on Victorian State Parliament House or on the Capitol building in Washington. And that's why this stuff is so important to understand and to study because it is, we are not talking about a few guys at home in their tinfoil hats. We're talking about a bunch of guys who are no longer at home in their tinfoil hats, but you know, getting together on the internet, talking about making bombs and threatening the lives of elect- democratically elected politicians on the streets.
0: Oh yeah, the the other thing that uh, it's probably also interesting for the listeners to to be aware of is that at the extremes of at, at extremes, for example, of the far right, which we're sort of talking about today. And in the jihadist space, there's also overlap on, on conspiracies because there's they occupy a world where anti-Semitism is rife. Um, they occupy a world where um there's always a major force in the case of some Islamist in the case of Islamist groups, it's the West. Uh, that's the big, big pariah in the case of QAnon. Um types, it's uh, anything that looks like the system, and we've, we, uh, there's a broad reach of literature in that in that space. If we can move, segue into families, because people the, the people themselves suffer because of what they have allowed to happen to them in some respects. Well, happens... I mean,
1: what happens to families? Well, yes. there's currently a community on Reddit called QAnon Casualties that... Last time I checked had 200,000 participants. That's a lot of people seeking support and help for dealing with uh, QAnon in their households, families and and social circles. Some of the reading that I did was very interesting around, I mean, again, it's an overlap between conspiracy beliefs and cult participation, which is another thing that makes QAnon so terrifying. And the interviews that I did with people who study cults talked about how the attraction for a cult is that it meets the individual's emotional needs, like a person is going through distress or instability and is looking for overwhelmingly simple answers to complex issues. If you give up your worldly positions and join me, Jim Jones down in Ghana, you know, we can build a new society, that kind of stuff. And where people, when people leave cults, is when the cults can no longer fulfil their emotional needs, and so the cults sort of, whether they're QAnon or not, play on that fracture. You know, individuals who are in distress who are seeking out some kind of some kind of connection. And of course, the the problem with cults is that they don't satisfy that need they can't because cults are based on propaganda they're based on cults of personality they're based on lies and that kind of you know inherent dishonesty of a cult promise will never sustain people indefinitely will not meet their emotional needs and if connection is maintained with those individuals and that can be very very difficult when they're trying to evangelize on on behalf of the cult um often those people can come back because there is a there's a path out of where they've been because that recognition gets made and the people who I studied and looked at and followed you could see that there was that participation in the cult didn't actually help them that that feeling of distress and anxiety did not go away the deeper they got into conspiratorial thinking in fact it fueled all of the anxieties and the anger and the fear that had led them there in the first place, and people who've talked about it since then have spoken about how they, they left the cult because they wanted to feel less afraid again, which is, you know, encouraging. But what happens to families in the meantime, and it's the frustration that when you're not in the cult, when you're not buying into the conspiracy theory, the temptation is to argue facts and logic, and say things like, no, like, there are not 300,000 children trapped under the streets of Melbourne who are being, you know, tortured by an evil cabal for their screens. And and this is a QAnon myth that's quite common in Australia, you know, the supposed massive, like, the entire population of Wollongong um, hid under the streets of Melbourne, requiring a logistical exercise to feed and house them, which is amazing. Like, if that is actually happening, we really should recruit that person to run, like, quarantine and pandemic responses because they are logistical genius um like your temptation is to argue facts and go this is obviously not happening these are all these material and logistical constraints that would stop this from happening how can you believe this the point is that people believe these things because they want to i mean we walk around with the most powerful information machines in the history of human civilization in our pockets all day our mobile telephones and mobile internet, mean that we can access all of the truth in existence about anything with a few clicks. And these myths are very easy to disprove. Okay. You know, the idea of children being tortured for their screens to make an elite powerful is actually the plot of Monsters, Inc. Like, it's not, it's not a real thing. And if celebrities look young and youthful, there's a very easy explanation, and that is they have personal trainers, dieticians and plastic surgeons.
0: Like. And, po- and possibly less stress than a few people working in factories, right?
1: Yeah, or entire management teams that are there to make sure they look that way so people who, you know, work in factories or anywhere else have something nice to look at at the end of the day. Like, and the, the thing is that that information is there. It's in our pockets. The people who are believing QAnon are not haven't been persuaded into it by force of evidence or logic, because there is no evidence to this. There is no logic. It is a it's a mutually affirmed willful fantasy that people are seizing on because they want to believe it. And my book talks about like all the different reasons why conspiracy theories yeah. appeal to people. And one of them is that people want to feel special, they want to feel like they have a secret knowledge, that they're keyed into something that's sort of expert and secret and exciting and it's that sense
0: the whole notion of being awakened unlike the rest of the world
1: oh yes we're all sheep you know we are all we're apparently all sheep because we're not awakened to this truth and I mean and for families who are trying to argue logic or you know and I encounter these people online all the time parents partners children desperately arguing with the people in their lives going this is not true how can you believe this and it's like they have they they have parted ways with logical argument this is an emotional preoccupation for them and it's like trying to tell someone to calm down or argue people who are frightened into being a different kind of emotion like it's it's not that easy to do what you can do and which is what i discovered over the course of of writing the book is to keep contact alive and not fall into the trap of arguing logic because it's just it's so destructive for people to go, but I'm telling you facts, why are you not listening to them? The the frustration is palpable and causes just this horrific strain on the on the relationships between the those who are trying to save the people they love and those who are lost.
0: One of the things we've observed um in during the pandemic, is the growth of groups on on, on things like Telegram, where a lot of uh, ideologies, yeah, extreme ideologies, have blended a bit like you know the, a a three year old playing with you know playing with paints on butcher's paper, mm-hmm. uh, finger painting. Um, and there's been a live debate on Twitter about you know what matters is it the prevalence of people holding ideologies and protests or is it the fact that there are a, a, a core network of people that pose a real threat and, and they're, the main, they're the main problem how do you see what we're seeing unfold at the moment
1: oh look there there are intersecting levels of people. So, like I said, at the beginning of the process, I was very interested on in your sort of ground-level believer, like your Uncle Jeff, who suddenly starts talking about cabals and children in tunnels and Hillary Clinton eating babies. And This is another thing that QAnon's believe: Hillary Clinton eats babies, which is, I mean, how she fits it in with all of her other commitments, I don't know. I know she's just done a novel and um, amazing time management. Um, that's one level of participation, but the thing about... The QAnon thing is we've seen this amazing um, uh, like uh, phenomenon that I think it was somebody from the LA Times described as conspiracy entrepreneurs and that there's a level of people, this sort of grifting level of people who are making a lot of money out of the believers in the conspiracy theory. And that's on every level from selling T-shirts with QAnon branded merchandise to running information sessions and YouTube channels asking, soliciting Patreon uh, donations, you know, to offer this sort of hidden truth and greater insight into these sort of conspiracy myths. There are obviously people making a living organising conferences and going on the conference circuit and uh, attracting QAnon believers to, you know, all kinds of town halls throughout the world to talk about these things and building social media profiles that they're trying to transact into other things. There's a a guy called Negative 48 who uh, appeared in a lot of my news feeds this week who's like a QAnon influencer, which is a terrifying concept, and he was one of the people encouraging people to go to Dallas uh, for the resurrection of JFK Jr., a man who has been dead for 22 years. There's a QAnon myth that JFK Jr. is not actually dead, that he's coming back and he's going to be uh, Donald Trump's running mate for president in the 2024 election. No, which I'm is still waiting of for
0: Elvis to come back, man. Let's, oh, let's we're let's waiting for all stuff. of them to come
1: back. And I mean, and the the JFK Jr. is coming back myth is kind of amazing. But negative 48 um, attracted all of these people to Dallas for a live event, uh, theoretically for JFK Jr. to appear. And then when JFK Jr. didn't appear, uh, suggested that they, you know, shifted the goalposts on the prophecy and said that uh Michael Jackson, who is apparently also not dead, would be appearing in disguise at a local Rolling Stones concert that they all went to. And I mean, it is it is pretty unhinged. It's it's pretty unhinged, man. But that guy is soliciting um donations and has built this sort of core audience and he's. Grift is to talk about investment in currency, which you can do through his website, encouraging people who believe him and are part of his belief community to buy Iraqi dinar and Vietnamese dong with this promise that a great financial reset is coming and these currencies will suddenly be worth dollar to dollar in American terms.
0: Right, and basically we're talking about an investment scam here.
1: Oh, yeah, and there's, I mean, there's heaps of it. There's heaps in common... The Venn overlap with multi-level marketing is very much a part of this kind of community. And you can imagine they're pretty valuable audiences, like the credulous um, people who believe Hillary Clinton eats babies. Like you can, if you know how to target them, you can sell anything to them. And these are not Mm -hmm. people who are going to complain to a consumer watchdog because they've been told through relentless propaganda to mistrust all sort of social institutions. So, I mean, it is—it's an incredible grift and the economics of it are fascinating to study.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm I'm well aware of, of the time you've been generous to to accommodate me uh, in a very busy schedule. I think <laughs> it has uh, has
1: been a bit of a crazy week. Let me tell uh, you, and a big shout out to the boneheads on the street in uh, Melbourne for timing their protests around the release of my book. Um, I've been very busy, but people are buying it, and uh, thank you. Although I. Preferred that they they weren't boneheads, they weren't on the street, and certainly that they weren't threatening to kill the premier of my state.
0: I think the um, there is a um, an important uh, uh, with a couple of questions that we need to wrap up with. One of which is um, to do with the discipline of the writer and researcher. Um, having studied the area of extremism and knowing how somebody literature is particularly obnoxious <laughs> and distressing. Um, I had to, to work out my own way of dealing with self-care in terms of dealing with what I was reading and researching for, for the purposes of higher degree study. Um, what was the process like for you writing this? And, and when did you sort at what point in time did you just loosen the loosen things up a bit to, to to recover from watching, looking at this stuff?
1: Well, the period of writing the book was in- incredibly fast because the publishers were like, "We want to make this really timely." So the from the moment the sort of ink was dry on the contract, it was just I was in it and working extremely hard to to meet all the deadlines and that meant just a total immersion in this world and i'm not going to lie psychologically it was exhausting it was absolutely exhausting and the propaganda is so awful um the anti-semitism that just drips from this stuff is really confronting uh the transphobia you know the anti-black racism it's all there even though the majority of adherents of QAnon, certainly the people out on the streets of Melbourne at the moment, wouldn't describe themselves as white supremacists or racists, you know, not not at all. But certainly the mythology that these conspiracy movements draw upon has its roots in literally thousands of years of horrific racism and anti-Semitism. And it's what gives it a sort of, you know, cultural heft is that they're borrowing from this sort of you know narratives that that have been pushed in the West for so long that they seem familiar and even comforting to a certain o- kind o- of organic person.
0: To some, organic is another word that might might fit within this space.
1: Yeah, well, this is I, I spoke about the anthropologist Norman Cohn, who talks about the nocturnal ritual fantasy. In his work like it, it and dates the kind of belief in their you know evil people eating children under the streets to the romans like this is old stuff and certainly i mean there's such a library of horrific anti-semitic content that has always been around the edges of the conspiracy movement um you know to a genocidal degree as we should remember from the 20th century and that stuff is absolutely a part of the the q mythos even if they're not Using the old language, they're certainly using the old myths with the new language. And I mean it's exhausting. When you're in a position of going, oh my God, it's happening again, this thing we thought we dealt with in the 20th century is is happening again. It's frightening. Like it's it's genuinely distressing stuff. And I got through it uh because I had friends who knew what I was doing who were very careful to make sure that I was okay and who took me up for breakfast and facilitated my chance to have breaks. My partner was incredibly supportive. He and I actually cut a de- deal. He, he found the content so distressing because I was deep into it going, oh, you know, I've just found this uh, another terrible story. Here is another terrible thing I learned today. Here is some terrible propaganda. And he went, look, I will read the book when it's out. Yeah. And he said, I will read the book when it's out, but while you're writing it, I just can't take this on board and, and get you through this at the same time. Mm -hmm. I will cut you a deal I will do all the cooking all the cleaning all the household management while you finish uh if I don't have to read the book until it's done but also I'm and I'm not gonna lie about this I checked in with a clinical psychologist once a week because I had to debrief because it is distressing like it is the stuff of nightmares and it's that it's that sense of just bleak despair and cynicism that anyone could participate in this is a, a really heavy sort of moral and intellectual burden to bear. Like, you just want to scream at people and go, why are you engaging this? Why do you want to return society to this, you know, to like a, a fascist paradigm? And that's really what it is. I mean, that's what we're talking about, is we're talking about, you know, the the kind of polarizations that we associate with the extremist movements of fascism uh, and, you know, having space to debrief and being supported by people who knew what I was doing and could you know, comfort me through that process and create safe spaces for me to engage and not talk about lizard people or propaganda. That's how I got through. But it, it's confronting. But I wrote the book and I, I persisted with it because we've got to fight these people. Like, there are people who are using the distress of the pandemic and, you know, lax regulation on social media and, you, you know, these sort of right-wing propaganda machines to try and mobilise a ground crew of of violent disruptors whose end goal is to take down democracy and, in some cases, execute democratically elected leaders. I mean, that is happening in Victoria as people are making those threats. They've made those threats on my Facebook page. It is outrageous. And the point is that, you know, we didn't go through the 20th century and all of the horrible, you know, violence and conflict that was engendered uh, uh, as a result of the extremist movements in uh, Western Europe we didn't go through that to just not learn any lessons. The lesson we learned was that we fight this stuff at the beginning. We're aware of it. We make sure that our institutions hold. We, we are enthusiastic about democracy and what democracy represents. And we shine a light on this stuff. And one of the things I found really exciting and hopeful about the book was just how many journalists were onto this stuff from the beginning and were absolutely dedicated to exposing it, to identifying it, to exposing the the characters, the conspiracy entrepreneurs, the grifters, the manipulators, the bad faith actors, and naming them and, you know, absolutely giving them no quarter. And it's that kind of journalism, that dogged investigative journalism, those characters really emerge in the book that I wrote as these, you know, plucky heroes determined to take the bad guys down. And that was something I found just an incredible comfort going actually, as long as people like this exist, as long as people do persist, you know, we just might stand a chance.
0: One thing, one one final question, uh, and this is possibly one of the more more important ones I've got for you. Um, Where do our leaders need to sit in this in terms of way in which they communicate Uh, because what we have right now is an environment where uh, extremist groups whether whether it's people who believe in QAnon whether they're anti-vax characters whether they're your traditional national socialist types whatever they happen to be you know there are many different colors of these characters what are the things political leaders need to bear in mind when they are communicating publicly?
1: Well I think conservative parties in the West whether it's the Republicans in the United States or the Liberal Party and National Party in Australia have to be aware is that you can't flatter these people like you can't it is an iron law of politics in the West that if conservative parties give ground to the far right they get eaten by the far right and I'm absolutely amazed to see the footsie that Scott Morrison has been playing with the extremist movements and that the Liberal Party in Victoria has been playing. It it took Matthew Guy over a week of uh, Liberal politicians going down and joining the protesters who were marching nooses past Parliament House in Spring Street. It took him a week to say that this was not gonna happen anymore. One in five Liberal parliamentarians, the Liberal national parliamentarians in Victoria, went and joined the protesters. Peter Credlin, Liberal Party identity, join the protesters. Craig Kelly, ex-liberal MP now with the United Australia Party, obviously he's like one of the avatars of this movement. Five liberal national politicians crossed the floor in the Senate today to vote with an anti-vaccine mandate motion put forward by Pauline Hanson. And these are, and I don't want people to think that Um, This is anything apart from the the most grossly cynical ha-ha, we can use these people to wedge the Labor Party kind of politics that could possibly go on. You can't ha-ha people who are threatening the life of the Labor Premier of Victoria because that ha-ha turns very quickly onto people who are threatening to hang you. And this is exactly what we saw in the United States of America where you had these Trump disciples, you know, who were more, more Trump than Trump was, who were threatening to hang Mike Pence, who was the vice president. And it's like, look at what's happened to the Republican Party in the United States as a result of these influx of extremists. Mm. Like the center and the center right have been driven out of the Republican Party. Joe Biden is president of the United States because the center and the center right voted for him because the alternative was this like hard right extremism that has mobilized to threaten Republicans in office. And when I say threaten, I mean threaten their lives. Republicans who stood up against Trumpism, who demanded that votes be counted and that Joe Biden be re- like recognized as the president of the United States for winning a fair and square election with no electoral fraud, they like they there were death threats against them from the Repu- what is now the Republican base. So the idea that Scott Morrison is flattering these people at all is. Is, is appallingly bad judgment, um, incredibly cynical judgment, and ultimately an extremely dangerous political decision made by an adult who should know better. Like, conservatives do not emerge from these kind of alliances with their power bases intact. Once they let the extremists through the door, it's the movement that collapses around them. And those who, who thought they were clever uh, find themselves uh, somewhat left out in the cold.
0: The book is QAnon On and On, uh, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy cults. I've been talking to Van Badham, and it is, as I understand it, out everywhere. If you're lucky, she's ducked into a bookstore and done a guerrilla signing. Um, And you might pick a book like that up. Van, it's been an absolute pleasure, one, to interview you, and two, to meet you for the first time, and I hope we can do it again. Oh,
1: Tom, thank you so much. I mean it's always good to meet people who are on board with stuff and want to have the discussion about democracy and maintaining it. <laughs> I'm such a fan. I'm such an enthusiast.
0: Yeah, t- thank you. And um, no doubt we'll talk again soon.
1: All right, Tom. Take care, darling.